And now, deep thoughts. Hey, this is Deep Thoughts, a podcast exploring the Christian faith a little more deeply, and this is the one about gender. The question of one's gender has hardly been a category and question in the imaginations of the masses throughout history, and yet you would be hard-pressed to find a more pressing question and divisive subject today. The topic of gender has roared onto the scene so quickly, the concept has evolved so rapidly, the level of importance deemed so integral that confusion and hostility are through the roof. Enter. Dr. Abigail Favalli. Now, there are so many great books worth reading out there, yet there is something particularly engrossing about reading just the right book at precisely the right time. And that is what Favalli's The Genesis of Gender is. Insightful, wise, and timely. One of the challenges with learning about subject matter as complex as gender is that the experts tend to be experts in one particular field, such as gender studies, or medicine, or theology, but rarely does someone understand gender theory, post-modernity, feminism, the medical data, and the Orthodox Christian faith altogether. And what makes Favali unique and uniquely enjoyable to read is her semi-autobiographical style of writing about both her scholarship in the field and her conversion to Catholicism and worldview wrestlings in light of that. Favali takes the reader on a quest, her quest, from the worldview assumptions of gender theory to her discovery of a more compelling worldview. The Genesis of Gender, which she writes about in the book and gets into with me in this episode. So now, here's my deep conversation with Dr. Abigail Favali. Hi, Abigail. We did it. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so you uh, recently moved to the University of Notre Dame or Notre Dame. Does anyone say Notre Dame there? Uh, absolutely no one says no Notre one. Dame. It uh, is definitely Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Notre Dame, yes. And it, it makes some people's ears bleed. I'm used to it now. Yeah. Um, no, so Notre Dame is the cathedral in Paris. Notre yes. Dame is the university in South Bend. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Is it a prerequisite that you have, like Rudy has to be your favorite movie to, to <laughs> work there, go there? Um, you know, I actually, I watched Rudy for the first time on a plane recently Oh, you after did. moving here. I hadn't seen it. I know. It's Isn't terrible. it great? It's great. It's so great. Yeah. It was fun watching it actually after I'd already moved here because I was like, oh, I know where that is or oh, that's Basilica. And yeah. So that must be. They do show it on the, like whatever that 
Gigatron thing is in the stadium every year for the oh, students I bet they do. play it. Yeah. And it's nice to see Samwise Gamgee try to play football, right? I Isn't know. that nice? He's so yeah. precious. He's and now He's when I best. watch Lord of the Rings, I'm like, oh, it's Rudy. <laughs> <laughs> totally, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're going to spend the bulk of our conversation talking about your book, The Genesis of Gender. Um, but I reached out to you a few months back and you're like, I'm working on other projects right now, maybe later. I would just love to hear what are you working on right now? Oh, okay. Um, what's next? What's next, right? Well, I'm working on a couple of things, a few things. Um, I do have a, a writing project I'm working on, um, but the which is actually a novel. I'm writing a novel. So oh, I have, really? I do have um, some fiction in my background and I'm, I'm kind of like, I live in like the intersection of literature and theology and philosophy. Mm. And so I'm, I'm wanting to dabble in um, literature for a little bit, but um, so that's kind of slow going as novels tend to be. Um, but I'm also working on a, an audio documentary podcast that's like a limited series, you know, like maybe eight or nine episodes. And it's featuring stories of Christians who experience gender discordance. So interviews mm. with them and then also interviews with other folks who bring in kind of commentary. Um, so to kind of look at the gender question, but also in a way that kind of humanizes people in the church who have that experience, um, and I've never done anything like this. All right. Like right after, right before I talked to you, I was in Descript, like scripting the first episode, like writing commentary, you know, so it's a mm. lot of work just weaving everything together. It's not kind of a free, freestanding interview style podcast, um, but more documentary style. So that's a lot of work. And I haven't done that kind of work before, but so I'm chipping away at it, but. It yeah. makes you appreciate folks who've done that well, hey? Like when you've listened to yeah. a really good series, the oh, actual yeah. work underneath that is absolutely insane. It is amazing, yeah. So um, I read uh, your book last year, uh, The Genesis of Gender, um, well on a vacation, uh, like a warm vacation with my wife. And she thought it was silly that I was sitting in the sun reading this book with a highlighter. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it was really, really timely. I, I find it so helpful. Um, I can tell you are a great writer. Um, it's, it's semi-autobiographical, I guess you could say you're weaving your story with, with this theme, uh, which was at times, uh, humorous and just really insightful. I, I would just love to hear a little bit, um, for the listeners to learn a little bit about you. Um, maybe, maybe you could start by just sort of threading your own, coming to the place of writing this book, some of your own wrestlings about this subject matter, I guess kind of starting in your undergraduate years. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I grew up Christian in an evangelical tradition in the United States. And when I went to college, I went to a Christian college and I became really interested in questions around women, women's roles, um, of the dignity of women, especially in the church. Um, so particularly in a Christian context, like what is the, you know, what is the significance or meaning of women, especially in relation to God? And I started pursuing some of those questions um, and they took me kind of into feminist thought. So feminist biblical criticism, feminist theology. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is exactly what I've been looking for, right? So I just kind of did a deep dive into that and um, began really being invested in Christian feminism at first kind of an egalitarian 
evangelical feminism, I would say, that was still very centered on the Bible as an authority, but one that has to be carefully interpreted and that often kind of takes a sort of egalitarian vision as its as its um, basis. But then I kind of drifted from that into more, I guess, eventually landing in more of a postmodern, post-Christian kind of feminism where the the Bible was no longer authoritative. It was really kind of a man-made construct that needed to be um, critiqued because of its patriarchal biases. And, and so I think once I kind of shifted away into more of a post-Christian space, um, feminism kind of became my main framework. I was no longer like a Christian looking at feminism as a resource. I was now like a feminist first and foremost, like those were my kind of foundational premises. And then I went to graduate school um, and did a master's degree in, in gender theory and then a PhD in literary um, feminist criticism. So I was really immersed in that world. Um, that was, those are the waters I was swimming in. And, and then I um, had a reversion back to Christianity around the age of 30, about a decade ago, and this time in the Catholic tradition. And that was such a profound worldview shift. <laughs> it was just, it because going the, like going from Christianity and into kind of postmodern feminism was kind of like a slow drift. Like there wasn't this sudden worldview reversal. It was just kind of like, you know, not even even really realizing it. I was kind of just drifting into another worldview. But when I came back the other way, it was very kind of abrupt and much more dizzying and disorienting because um, it just kind of changed the the whole my entire way of seeing the world and reality and myself and all these questions. And so since then, I've been trying to kind of bring some of my insider knowledge of the field of gender studies, but to come at those same questions that I've always been interested in from a deeply Christian perspective um, and to kind of draw on the resources of the Catholic intellectual tradition and theological tradition and navigating some of those questions. So that's sort of what brought me to writing the book, the Genesis of gender. Yeah. That's uh, like, there are so many moments that I thought you articulated well, like this um, moment you write about in in your junior year where there was like a feminist professor and you were excited to take a class from her and like, interesting, what's she going to say about Paul? Like, how is she going to talk about, you know, interpret this as an egalitarian. And she was like, no, Paul's the patriarchy. We don't, we can ignore it. And, and, and you, you confess, you kind of were like a little bit troubled by, by that kind of a view, but then eventually chose, um, kind of feminism first and foremost, um, if that's uh, a way of putting it. And then it, it seems like early on as a professor, you started teaching. Is that when this, reconversion you talk about at 30 happening because you mentioned like getting to a point I think where things shifted back for you towards more of a Christian worldview where you started to feel guilty or bad about what you had been teaching like hey I'm a success Mm -hmm. as a professor if I make them question everything Mm -hmm. and and would you just talk through that a little bit like you mentioned the reconversion um, back to Christianity or Catholicism and then at 30 but what's going on in the classroom for you at that time? Mm -hmm. How's that shift starting to take shape for you? Yeah. So my first few years as a professor, I was in more of the kind of postmodern feminist um, perspective. 
And so I was teaching from that perspective and I was teaching in a Christian context. And I had, I mean, I kind of, when I look back, I'm like, I was not a Christian at all. You know, I had such cognitive dissonance. Um, but I, I kind of have, I was a nominal Christian, I guess. Um, and had a lot of angst about teaching in a Christian environment, but not having a, a very robust faith myself. But anyway, mm-hmm. so I had, I had, I guess what is kind of a maybe typical sort of, um, I don't know if I want to call it progressive necessarily, but I will a progressive outlook where I kind of saw myself as more enlightened than kind of traditional Christianity. And so bringing them kind of into more of this like open-ended questioning, um, non kind of dogmatic space was seen as like a step forward. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this process of kind of disorienting students, Um, was seen as like part of the education process. And, you know, and I think in my department, there were even some people for whom that was very explicit, that that's kind of what we were doing, Um, that that's what, you know, we're bringing these kind of naive students into a more like intelligent kind of faith, which was really a faith kind of empty of much content at all. Um, I mean, really what was going on, I think, is what now is kind of termed deconstruction, like faith deconstruction, yeah, right. right? So that's what I did in my 20s is I deconstructed my faith. Mm. Um, there just wasn't that terminology on offer. And so I think the way I was teaching was kind of coming from that place of a faith that had been deconstructed, right? Um, and so when I reconstructed, I guess, when I, although it wasn't really constructed, I just like, it was a very like sudden kind of, divine intervention sort of reversion back to Christianity. But when I began to have faith again and to re-enter a kind of a Christian understanding, I, I was, I was shook, you know, by how I'd been, been teaching um, and doing the kind of typical academic thing where you like, Oh, I'm just going to kind of like assign a bunch of readings. We'll talk about the readings. Like here's this kind of pluralistic buffet and I'm going to sort of be detached from any kind of claim about anything and that's an education, you know? <laughs> so, um, I think I had, I, I was, I think especially with gender theory because gender theory hmm. as a genre is just like intentionally difficult to read. Like there's just a lot of, um, intentional play with language, like kind of deflecting meaning, subverting meaning, not coming, like generating ambiguity. Like that's kind of what the discipline does Uh. is it deflects truth and kind of deconstructs truth rather than positing much. And so, you know, I began to feel like I just, I hadn't really been really educating my students, you know, if education is about kind of directing the heart and mind toward what is true and what is good and what is beautiful You know, I had been kind of muddying the waters for them, right? Because that's what I was, I was swimming in muddy waters and I was like, come in, the water's great. (laughs) Um, So my conscience, you know, kind of, you know, woke up Mm. after about 10 years and was like, oh, you know, maybe Mm. this isn't the best thing to do. So, yeah, I I definitely had to to come to Jesus moment, literally about, about that. That's fascinating. Yeah, I love how you, how the book carries that story through. Um, and 
you really are, you really do, in my opinion, have this really unique vantage point because you swam in the waters of like gender theory and um, some of these, some of the, you know, in their, in the idea of, of feminist um, studies, like you're swimming in the waters of like the world-class folks like, you know, Judith Butler and all that kind of stuff. It, it's interesting to hear you talk about it as an insider and be like, to be honest, it's confusing. <laughs> like it's interesting or, or what you find um, a lot of students who, who read Judith Butler and others susceptible to is latching on to a few ideas that they can grasp and taking the whole thing wholesale. Um, just having that kind of insider vantage point. Um, you talked about it there, but, but I wonder if you can flesh that out a little bit more. How does that, how does that look? Yeah. I mean, I think especially with someone like Judith Butler, her early work, like um, where she's giving this theory about gender as this kind of unconscious, socially compelled performance that creates the illusion of an essence, right? So she's, her early work is actually very, in some ways, countercultural to some of the ideas that are floating around now, because she's basically saying gender doesn't exist. It's, mm -hmm. it's all a construct. In fact, sex is a construct. She goes that far. But, you know, the idea that we perform our gender in a basic way seems intuitively true. Like there's a sense in which we do kind of perform certain gender norms. So I think my students would read Butler and be like, oh, yeah, gender totally is a performance. You know, like I perform my gender when I kind of dress up nice to go to the dance and put on a skirt and lipstick. You know, I'm performing my without kind of realizing like the the kind of radical extent of her argument, which is basically that every, all of reality is a social and linguistic construct. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, sometimes these kind of, they, there would be these little handholds or these ways into the material without kind of realizing maybe the concessions that were being made. And I think that I began to get worried about that because I, like I described before, even even when you say like, I chose that different kind of, like when I chose to be more of a postmodern feminist, it's like, there wasn't this moment where I like consciously chose it. It's like, I absorbed it. I really think mm. like I drifted into it mm. because I was just read, you know, that's what I was reading. You know, I was interested in feminist. And so like the more feminism, so the more texts I read, the more I just kind of drifted into this kind of postmodern worldview without making this kind of conscious decision that like, I'm now going to view the world as a linguistic construct. <laughs> you know, you just kind of drift into it. And so I was afraid that, that was, that's what was happening with my students. Because one of the one of the features, I think, of gender theory and gender studies is that it often doesn't make its kind of worldview presuppositions very explicit. Um, and so it can it can be easy to just kind of like fall into, into this or absorb this implicit worldview. And I, you know, even in graduate school, we were reading all these things and like not once did a professor ever just kind of sit back and say, so do you think any of this is true? <laughs> you know, do you think what she's saying is true? It was like, oh, here's her theory about this. And if we use her theory to analyze this cultural phenomenon, you know, it was just all this kind of game of, 
looking like looking at things through the lens of theory. Let's read this text through the lens of Butler's gender theory, or let's look at this kind of social phenomenon through this theoretical lens. Like no one at any point kind of was like, is this true? Right. It was just because not because the the unspoken truth is that nothing is assumed to be true. So all you can really do is apply lenses to things, mm-hmm. you know, it's, mm-hmm. and so it becomes just this kind of game um, of borrowing kind of frameworks yeah. temporarily from certain things and apply. Yeah. Anyway. Postmodernism is wild. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you let, let's let's drill down a little bit. Um, we've talked about gender kind of mentioned it a few times. And there really is this um, a, a com- common thinking. It's gotten into kind of public discourse is that the gender is a construct uh, that that's that seems to be fairly common now. In common vernacular, you might say that, like, man, I've I've kind of always used sex and gender like synonymously. Um, when did sex and gender become really different things? When did gender get elevated as the primary thing above biological sex? And can you just maybe trace those terms a little bit, flesh that out for us? Sure. Yeah. So that's one one big part of the book is kind of tracing that genealogy of gender, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, because gender first entered the scene in the mid 20th century. So prior to that, it was more of a linguistic term. And so the term sex, the sexes, you know, was was how you talked about men and women or how you distinguish between men and women. Um, gender wasn't really used as a synonym for sex. Um, and so one one point in the story um, that I kind of start with is in the feminist philosophy of Simone de Beauvoir which her her magnum opus is called the second sex, right? So she doesn't use the term gender, but she does introduce the concept that gender would soon come to name. And that is the idea that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman, right? So she's making this distinction between kind of you're born female, but then there's this whole other kind of cultural, culturally imposed um kind of false vision of what it means to be female or what it means to be a woman. And that is a construct. So she's kind of drawing a distinction between biological sex and then kind of the the social and cultural interpretations and norms that are associated with sex. And that distinction between sex and gender becomes like the primary distinction of feminist theory until like the 90s, really, where you have the sex genders distinction, right, where genders refers to culture, the cultural constructs, and then sex refers to biology. And then where it shifts again is with Judith Butler's early work, where she basically says, well, sex is a construct too. Like our interpretation of human bodies as falling into this discrete binary is a construct. It's a fiction, right? So she essentially makes everything gender, right? So gender is a social construct, but sex itself is a social construct, right? And so now I think we've arrived in an even different, a further kind of iteration of gender where a lot of people now talk about gender as this kind of internal sense of self, right? That actually... My, isn't really constructed, but is like deeply real and deeply innate, right? Mm-hmm. So you might call this like gender subjectivism. And so I think you have kind of gender constructionism, gender subjectivism, they're different views, but what connects them is the separation of gender from sex or from the body, 
right? So gender subjectivism will also say that sex is a construct, but only then to be able to say, and so the gender identity or that felt sense of gender is what really determines whether you're a man or a woman. So that's kind of, I think, where our culture has mm-hmm. um, has come. But yeah, so as soon as, because gender isn't really rooted in anything real, because it is distinct from sex, it's this kind of like free floating concept that keeps changing meanings um, depending upon the goal of whoever is using it. So you wrote something that was fascinating to me about fantasy. Um, This idea that a biological male could feel like a woman, but he doesn't actually know what that is and so what he constructs then is a a fantasy like can you explain that a little bit more because i I, we have gotten to the place it seems where subjective self-identification um overrides the biological reality so um, can you talk a little bit about that like i thought that was really interesting is even a male wanting to identify as female or feeling like that's them, it's it's still not necessarily accurate. It's their interpretation of it. And there's so there are so many constructs about what female is that or mm-hmm. male is that that sometimes get a little out of whack. Yeah, I mean it's in some ways I, I think what's happening is that maybe someone is taking what might be metaphorically true in some sense. And claiming that it's literally true, right? Because mm-hmm. it might, it, there's a lot of variation and diversity kind of, um, there are all kinds of different sorts of men, all kinds of different sorts of women, right? Like it's kind of amazing when yeah, you think about it, yeah. that no two women who've ever existed are exactly the same. No two men who, you know, so there's a lot of, even though there's like a very kind of hard binary when it comes to the body's reproductive structure, that's a very kind of visible and easily identifiable distinction there. When we talk about things that people enjoy, certain personality traits, there might be general trends among the sexes, but there's a lot of variation when it comes to individuals. So, you know, an individual man might in some way have certain traits or dispositions or preferences that our culture kind of categorizes as feminine, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe he feels like a deep kind of affinity or a, um, an attraction to those things or feels like that describes him better than the kind of laundry list of what we think of as masculine. Um, so in that sense, like what he's claiming, like there's there's some truth to that. He's maybe yep. saying, I, you know, I resemble or I kind of have an affinity for the things that our culture sees as feminine. Mm. Um, But that's not literally true, right? Then that doesn't mean that a man is a woman or can even know what it's like to be a woman, right? Because you can't know what it's like. You can't know what it's, what it feels like to be something you're not Mm. right. Kind of by definition, you can only sort of imagine what it must be like to be that thing. And then perhaps what you imagine it's like is very appealing and you have, you resonate with that, you know, so I can imagine what it's like to be a cat. Right. But that doesn't mean I actually know what it's like to be a cat. Right. Mm. Um, Because that requires that one has a certain kind of nature. Right. 
Um, so I think that what's happening in those, those instances is kind of a, a confusion maybe of what, what might yeah, be true in a kind of metaphorical or an analogous sense, but is not literally can't be literally true. Yeah. I appreciate that. One of the things I appreciate about the book is you, you bring in a lot of research, like you utilize data and there is fascinating data on the category of intersex, for example, that you draw out in the book. Um, and it may actually surprise some listeners. It surprised me because I, I hear the, the popular level sort of, Hey, one point something percent of every baby that's born is born intersex. And you think, Oh wow. Like that's, that's a lot, like almost two out of a hundred babies it, there's like are identified as intersex. And so that is a fairly large category then in our society and that kind of thing. You, you reference, uh, Fausto Sterling, uh, mm -hmm. arguing that sex should be understood as a continuum rather than binary. So that's, um, their vantage point is the notion that intersex conditions are fairly common, occurring as many as 1.7% of live births. Uh, but you go on to say the five most common conditions that Fausto and Sterling categorize as intersex do not actually involve instances of sexual ambiguity. Um, can you drill down on that a little bit more? Yeah. Because I think that popular, like I said, at a popular level, I was like, man, this is quite common. And so we should be, you know, really careful, really sensitive. Like lots of folks around us are, are maybe neither male, neither, neither female or complication, that kind of stuff. Um, can you talk about what the data actually seems to say? Sure. So, yeah, there is this figure floating around that 1.7% of people are intersex. And then intersex is assumed to be neither male or female why are there balloons flying <laughs> did i do something i have so no I, like, idea won an award i won an award zoom gave I me have an no award idea, but for those listening a bunch of balloons just floated over her zoom screen it was awesome <laughs> i'm like not even touching my computer uh, that's, that's amazing okay um anyway so there is this statistic like 1.7 percent um and intersex there is like often interpreted like you just said as like you can't tell whether someone's male or female so there's sexual right. ambiguity going on right so it's important to realize that intersex names over a dozen different conditions that somehow affect the sexual development process. And the vast majority of intersex conditions do not result in apparent sexual ambiguity. So that means right. that there might be some kind of abnormality in the reproductive system, but it's still obviously this is a female person, right? So an example might be PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome. So those are women who have kind of unusually high levels of testosterone and that can cause cysts in the ovaries. It can sometimes disrupt fertility. But these are women, right? These are women right. who are unambiguously women, many of whom, you know, have their own children. So um, in in Ann Fosto Sterling's kind of 1.7 figure like any kind of abnormality in the sexual reproductive system is included in intersex. Um, so the vast majority of intersex conditions do not result in any kind of sexual ambiguity. Those that do are much more rare. And in those cases, what's going on is usually very highly individualized and very complex. You kind of need to look at, you know, the, the person as a whole and what kind of might be going on in that particular person's body over the sexual development process. Um, and even in those cases, maleness or femaleness will will predominate. So there's never been 
a case of um, a truly hermaphroditic human being. So someone who's capable of fulfilling both the female and the male reproductive role, right? Um, so there's no, there's no like third sex, right? There's no, but there are, there are congenital conditions that do, that do kind of disrupt. Um, but to, to categorize those or try to exempt those conditions from maleness and femaleness altogether is not only is that just inaccurate, I think it's also dehumanizing, right? Because then that, that suggests that a woman who has PCOS or who has vaginal agenesis, right? So a a vagina that doesn't fully form that somehow she's not a real woman. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think the, the more, the better understanding is to think about, intersex conditions or DSDs as variations within maleness and femaleness um, rather than kind of these totally other categories at all. So hmm. there's so much information floating around about um, intersex conditions. So that's why I wanted to write an entire chapter on that in my book. Um, so for the, the true statistics, um, not the 1.7%, but if we look at just intersex conditions, that result in, in kind of apparent sexual ambiguity at birth, that number is 0.0182%, right? So it goes way, way down. So that means then to put it differently that in 99.982% of births, um, there's the, the baby can be readily identified as male or female. Right. Mm. So, um, so that's not to like dismiss entirely. Right. I think we still need to have, um, awareness and compassion for people who have these conditions, but it's really a medical, it's a medical issue. It's a physiological issue, right? That sometimes need, needs some kind of medical management sometimes doesn't. Um, but that, that's really, it's a very, that's a very different scenario than the question of gender identity. So these are really separate. These are kind of separate things, separate questions, um, and so conflating them, I think, really does um, does kind of a disservice to yeah. to people who experience these conditions. Yeah, that is so clarifying. Um, going back, I want to speak to a phenomenon you speak to in the book as well. There's a phenomenon happening right now, uh, really since the Internet era of 2014, uh, as it pertains to uh, seeking uh, transition. So uh, you write about prior to the internet era, those seeking transition were typically natal males in their 40s. And then in 2014, like the rise of the internet, things began to change drastically. And by 2019, three times as many natal females were seeking transition and most of them teenage girls. Um, That is a rapid, drastic change uh, like nothing we've ever seen before. What is going on? Yeah, so the the demographic shifts are really pronounced and and pretty interesting. Um, so you have the sex ratio is flipped. So more females than males are now seeking treatment for gender distress, and the age has gone way down. So we're not talking about adults anymore, um, or predominantly we're talking about young adults, teenagers, early early twenties. Um, so. What is going on, right? I mean, that's that's such an interesting question. And I think there's a lot of resistance in our culture because of the culture wars to really delve deeply into that. Um, there's a lot of resistance to looking at kind of social influences that might be fueling this phenomenon. But 
in, in all my research and all the interviews I had with people who had transitions, many of whom had detransitioned, the in like in the internet is this common thread on all of them. Like there's a lot of variation, you know, it's very hard to kind of generalize, but the one common thread was that they kind of encounter this narrative that explains their distress on the internet. Right. And a lot of them have spent kind of immersed themselves in the world, of the internet. Um, so I think and even just looking at the years and when these when these um, shifts began to happen, it's very clearly kind of linked to the rise of social media, and the ubiquity of the smartphone, um, especially among young people um, who are increasingly spending more and more of their time online. And also, I couldn't include this in the book because of when I wrote it, but um, the kind of rates of gender distress spiked immensely after COVID. Right. When so many, mm-hmm. when so many young people were even further kind of cut off from right. um, their communities and then spending more and more time online. Yeah. So this, and I think there's a lot of reasons for, for why there's that connection. Um, I mean, I think the world of the internet is a very disembodied place, right? I mean, we all participate in this phenomenon in some way where we kind of curate this ideal self online you can airbrush photos of yourself so your body looks different than it does on there. You can kind of become this new person. Like you can create this other image of yourself. Um, and you can almost kind of live there. And then so some of what's happening, I think, is trying to bring that that kind of liquidity of identity into the real world. Right. Mm. Where um yeah, and then yeah, anyway. So I think that's one piece of what's what's happening. Yeah, because you wrote a line prior to 2012, there is no scientific evidence of adolescent girls experiencing gender dysphoria at all. What? Like that? Okay, so that's a distinction also between another distinction that can be made is between early onset and late onset gender Mm -hmm. dysphoria. So there is the more kind of traditional cohort of gender dysphoria pre, let's say, 2010. Um would be child onset. So these are young children, like three, four or five years old yep. who just are yep. coming, you know, like a little boy who's like, no, I'm a girl. It's supposed to be a boy. Right. So this very kind of pronounced phenomenon. And so that was f- much more rare than what we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. So one of the kind of new emergent phenomenons is, ch- is, is adolescent onset gender dysphoria. Right. Um, and so that that's kind of the distinction that's being made, made there. Sometimes so there is called documentation. Rapid, is yeah. Rapid yeah. Onset? Sometimes called okay. rapid. Yes. Rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, but whether it's rapid or not, just this, it could be adolescent gotcha. that seems to kind of, that is, was not apparent in early childhood. So mm-hmm. in that earlier cohort, the majority of them were natal males, but there were females, but it would be child onset gender dysphoria. So that's, that's the distinction that's being made is that this phenomenon of predominantly female adolescent onset gender dysphoria is a strikingly new phenomenon Hmm. um, of the past decade or so. Yeah. I, um, I'm going to ask you at the end just about just how we, how we communicate about these things because it's very, um, it's very sensitive and um, I would never want to be unnecessarily, um, yeah, harmful or like cause any harm by the way that I talk about it. I just, it's, it, 
it matters so much and it's it's such a phenomenon um so this is anecdotal but i just i, th- I just think back to growing up in the 90s you know and like you know so again this is anecdotal this is very generic but i wonder if maybe there's a conversation to be had here just about some of the like the tomboys who like liked all the boy like liked the stuff the boys liked um but were unquestionably a girl but there was a space for that um i wonder too about some of this like just the 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 what feels like growing sexualization of girls because of the internet and wanting to recoil from that and you know um think of of girls um you know going through puberty and having like unwanted attention from males and sexualized attention there's all of these like and and to have categories that just didn't really exist before weren't in our vernacular of maybe I'm a maybe I'm a guy I don't want this thing or you know like there's a there's a confusion that comes on a popular level in society today um I'd be interested to hear your insights on it um you know it was just commonplace in like junior high for me for girls to be cuddling with each other physical touch and whatever and um there was just no sense that they wanted to be in relationships with each other and and now there's sort of an idea of well I like the I like the attention of girls I like physical touch with my girlfriends maybe I'm like so there's such an interesting conversation going on part of it being the amount of confusion for our kids today the kind of world we're handing them that speaks into some of what you were saying earlier where no there are no undergirding truths it's all up for grabs that's the sort of world we're handing kids and in some ways i find it to be cruel um what would you speak to that in terms of your research and your vantage point like I'm throwing out some some random thoughts folks often have around these things, which is by no means to belittle uh, some of the real tragic um, just inner turmoil. Actually, I'm trying to speak tenderly about that. But but what would you say about yeah. <laughs> all the random stuff I just said? Yeah, I mean, I think one one way of describing this phenomenon in our culture is that all this whole kind of vast array of kinds of adolescent experiences of distress um, are are being funneled into this simplistic narrative that this is about gender, right? So there's this narrative mm-hmm. that now is like, oh, if you if you don't feel at home in your body, if you if you feel alone, if you don't feel like you fit in, right? So it's it's offering this kind of one size fits all answer to the very real kinds of distress people are experiencing, especially young people who are going through puberty and experiencing um, many of the things you were describing, right? And so it, it becomes this answer to very real experiences. But the problem is that it it's it actually hides what could be going on in that it's almost like a smokescreen right. in a way, right? So in some ways we have to like listen past the script, right? It kind of, we have this cultural narrative now that like hands a young person a script. It's like, this is why you're in distress. This is what's going on with you. And if you follow these steps, you know, if you choose a different name for yourself, choose different pronouns, if increase it, you know, if you medicalize, right. That if you become 
you you really are this other gender. And if you realize that, like if you actualize that, then it will solve all your problems, right? Like that's a very compelling story, right? And so I think even as we, we kind of need to do two things. We need to resist that story, not mm-hmm. accept that story because it's it's not a true story. But then we also need to really see to what is happening in like the heart and soul of the person before us. Right. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it can be very difficult to navigate. And I, one of my frustrating, one of my many frustrations about kind of the, the discourse of gender in our culture is that we have these new categories that are popping up, but are then kind of presented as if they're they're natural categories that have always existed. We just didn't realize it, mm. which that completely overlooks. In fact, that the categories themselves are kind of creating something. And this is where the phenomenon of social construction, this is like where kind of postmodernists have like something, something there, which is that the words we use and the categories that we, that we use and that we embrace do have a profound effect on how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive reality. Now, where the postmodernists go wrong is they say there's no reality to push back, right? So, you know, as a Christian, we do, you know, we do believe in reality. And so we want to use a language in a way that corresponds with truth, corresponds with mm-hmm. reality, mm-hmm. right? Because um, a lot of the way that language is being used in our culture right now, I think, is is kind of misshaping our perception of of what things are. So we have to resist the framework, but we, but we have to also reach out and love toward the person, um, which is really tough. You know, it's tough to do like what I'm not, I say this, like it's easy, you know, it it means like stepping into a space of tension, Mm -hmm. um, which Mm -hmm. can be quite unpleasant. Yeah. Can we, can we just draw that out just a little bit more? Like something I appreciate again about the book is, is you wade into, um, one of the most heated contemporary debates. Um, you land on the side that oh, I guess you could get canceled with certain groups, no matter, uh, depending on who you are. Uh, but, uh, um, you're wading into that kind of material where it's like very delicate, um, very heated, but you do it with grace and charity and goodwill. Um, what what would be a word um, to us that you would have to to teach us about um, sure holding you know a, a Christian vision of, of of gender paradigm, which will be my last question. I just want you to put that in front of us, but but how to hold it Christianly? What would be a little bit of advice you'd give us for just um, yeah having talking about this stuff in caring ways, being a support? Yeah, well, I think tone matters. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, tone. Um, having a tone that is not condemnatory or accusatory, but that, you know, really trying to be, to speak the truth, but with like sympathy, right. Um, and to really try to be attentive to the humanity of the person and the dignity of the person as we're, as we talk about these issues. Um, I think that's, I think that's really important also not to assume that any Anyone, everyone who struggles with gender or who, you know, identifies into one of these emergent categories is this like hardcore postmodern ideologue, right? Um, but to really take more of a kind of, to really just try to see the person, like 
who is this person? And I'm not going to like assume that they believe certain things. Right. Um, but to actually really try to understand what they're going through and to meet them where they are, um, and not to, to make assumptions or to see them as like immediately an enemy of some kind, like some kind of ideological enemy. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, one way of putting it, one way I sometimes think about it is I think Christians are called in this moment to have fidelity and receptivity. Like, so fidelity in terms of fidelity to the truth and both kind of the truth of nature, but also the truth of divine revelation, right? So to be faithful, but receptivity in the sense to also be receptive to the person who thinks differently than I do, who is seeking truth, who is confused or who is suffering. Right. Mm. Um, and those two things, fidelity and receptivity, I think, are the characteristics of what it means to be mother and bride, which is what the church is supposed to be, right? right. The church is supposed to be a bride. So she needs to be faithful, mm. but also mm. kind of loving and and, and open. Um, and that can be tricky, right? Because you have people on both sides who are like, no, you got to give up one or the other, right? You can't right. truly love someone while you're holding those lines, right? You have to let go of that. Or you can't really hold those lines unless you kind of have really, really hard boundaries that push away the person. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so, one of the things that's so captivating about Jesus is, is somehow he, uh, he was truthful with people and yet he, they never questioned that he was loving to them. And, and sometimes we want to throw out one or the other and, we're left with sentimentalism or fundamentalism if we're, or if we're just the one or the other. So no, that's a good word. Okay. Let last question. It's the unfair, huge question. Um, so pretend you're in an elevator and you're trying to answer it. Uh, this is super complicated stuff, but the book's called the Genesis of gender, a Christian theory. Um, what would you drill down or what would you summarize as sort of a Christian vision of gender? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, well, I think the Christian vision of gender is really grounded in Genesis, although it then flows outward into it's all throughout scripture um, and Christian tradition as well. It's not just limited, but Genesis is kind of the source of it because that's the narrative that tells us kind of who we are and how we're made. Mm. Um, so I think a Christian understanding of gender, one, believes that there's a creator. So our nature, we are not self-created, but we receive who we are. So creation is a gift that comes to us and that includes our personhood and our bodies, right? So the body is a gift and it's something that is good. And I think if you read the Genesis creation narratives with attention, you can see how important sexual difference is in the created, in God's creative plan. I mean, it's really the the culmination of God's creative action, especially in Genesis 2, it really comes out that that our differentiation as male and female that kind of signals our capacity for self-gift and fruitfulness, that this is something that is part of, um, it's not only part of the gift of creation and part of how we participate in the gift of creation, but it's also part of how we image God, right? Because God is the giver. 
um, God is as Trinity is a communion of love. Right. And so we're kind of like a microcosm of that in our maleness and femaleness that has the capacity to generate new life. Right. So those are, those are, um, key parts of what I would say is, is part of the Christian vision. So there's a, there's a natural goodness to sexual difference and our capacity for fruitfulness, but there, there's also a sacramental or a supernatural goodness to it because it, it is kind of an icon of God in a particular way. Um, and, you know, I could extend that to the sort of nuptial metaphor, which is so central to Christian scripture and tradition, which is, you know, Christ as bridegroom and church as bride. And that, that central metaphor, that nuptial metaphor is rooted in sexual difference as connected to generativity, right? And that's the thing that gender theory rejects. Like gender theory takes man and woman and uproots it from the potential for fruitfulness. And so, you know, when the church... When scripture talks about men and women, it's connected to fruitfulness. It's connected to our potential for fatherhood or our potential for motherhood. And that doesn't mean that you have to become, you have to get married or become a mother or a father in a literal sense. I mean, in my tradition, there's a huge tradition of celibacy, right? So for people who give up marriage um, in this life for the sake of the kingdom, and that's still a fulfillment of the kind of spousal meaning of the body um, in a way that, that I think is really important, too. So when I talk about how the Christian understanding of gender is connected to our potential for a new life, I'm not laying this down in some kind of like deterministic moral law, um, but rather it's a it's a vision of reality that we all participate in in different ways. That's, I could go on, but yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. There. But the, ele- the elevator has reached the floor, so there we go. <laughs> um, have you ever been called prophetic before? Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. One of the ways that I think of things being prophetic is it's it's not new truths. It's it's the ancient truths, but it's the uh, it's particular ancient truths at precisely the right time. It's it, hey, you need to be reminded of this, and in that way, I found this book to be just super timely, or mm. might we say prophetic. So, thank you, thank Abigail. You. Great conversation, incredible book. I uh, just really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks so much. Just to piggyback on Abigail's final thoughts there about approaching gender Christianly, uh, the Christian worldview, while out of step in society, seeks to dignify people by genuinely caring for them, listening to them, and championing a holistic, integrated vision for gender, sex, humanity, and faith. Ryan T. Anderson, uh, author of When Harry Became Sally, wrote in his endorsement of Abigail's book, The genesis of gender is essential reading for anyone who wants to understand how we arrived at such a confused state and how we can lovingly promote the truth about human nature. I am sure that you got a taste of that 
in my conversation with Abigail in this episode. So thanks for listening to Deep Thoughts. I hope it helps you in fostering deep faith.